0: Hey, this is Mike Missanelli, and you're listening to the Feed to Embiid, the number one Sixers podcast in America.
1: Yeah, 2-1 on his jersey, playing like he's number one. yeah, homie, let the fans know it Watch the trailer, all the three is going in your eye If you mess, you better get back Cause if the bees, there, won't be a putback Keep all that trash out of the paint Cause Embiid will put it back in your face He's a cold-blooded killer, and he take no prisoners Yeah, dump off from TJ Call it to feed to Embiid <laughs>
0: What's going on, everybody? This is the Feed to Embiid. I am your host, Austin Krell, along with my new co-host, the one and only t-shirt-ripping Brock Landis. Brock, introduce yourself to the people.
1: Austin, thank you for having me on. I'm excited to get this journey started. I am a sophomore at Temple University, and you alluded to it before the show, I am the stat man, so if you follow me on Twitter, at LandisBrock, L-A-N-D-E-S-B-R-O-C-K, I'm always tweeting stats. I live, breathe, and sleep basketball. So Austin, I'm enamored that you were giving this opportunity to talk basketball with you on this platform. I
0: only allow, I only let the the highest, I, the highest of intelligence on this show. So as soon as <laughs> you said, you, as you said you were a free agent, I said I got to jump this opportunity. Um, so it's been a while since our last episode. I've been, I've been sort of in the writing side more lately, um, but a lot's happened since the last episode. Um, most notably they had an Owen 4 road trip which we all enjoyed just so much and yeah, um, yeah. you know it, it was by I think 11 or 10 in, in Atlanta 18 in Boston 30 something in Miami and then I think uh, 11 or so in 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 Milwaukee all around horrible road trip we had all it had all of us question our purposes in life and and whether there was actually a god out there um, but I guess you know. I want to begin with some of the observations from that road trip. And I think the one that a lot of people agree on the most is that it appears Brett Brown has just completely lost control of this team and he no longer has their ear.
1: Right. Uh, In observing some of the videos that have surfaced, uh, namely the one where Al Horford and Tobias Harris were on the bench when Brett Brown was giving them discussion during a timeout, and Tobias Harris got off the bench prior to Brett Brown even finishing that conversation, and Al Horford seemed to be tuning him out, that was a red flag. Now, I've argued that there's been problems internally with Philadelphia, but the team can overcome them. And I think of late, some of the external problems have bled into the locker room. And I guess that's to be expected during the trade deadline, but Philadelphia was apparently one of the most active teams in the NBA. Uh, in the midst of the trade deadline. So I think the reason some of that external issue bled into the locker room is because there was uncertainty. And again, they're one of the most scrutinized teams in in all of national basketball. So you've got Joel Embiid, who's a polarizing character, and Ben Simmons, on the other hand, who's very ambiguous. I, I mean, Ben Simmons is one of the most mysterious basketball players I have ever seen in my life. And you pair that with a coach that's been here for near a decade and he's been facing a ton of criticism of late and the national media scrutiny. And it's, it's just one big bleeding wound, I should say. And there's one thing that could cover that winning that's the bandage. But Austin, you said it perfectly. There was a couple of really disheartening losses. And when you lose certain ways, especially on the road against teams that Philadelphia was specifically built to beat, then the, the, the bandage starts peeling off of that wound and, and, and that dam starts opening up a little bit. So I think there's, there's definitely some overarching chemistry problems, and, and I think there's systematic problems with Brett Brown. I think there's problems with the front office and how this organization is ran. But winning heals all wounds. So if Philadelphia can win for a sustained period of time, you hope that that talent can trump that. Um, but the reason a lot of those things emerge during the Sixers' losing streak was simply because they were losing,
0: right? And it, it wasn't like it was just these close losses that you know, like, like oh darn it, they were so close to, to winning this to winning this game, and they just weren't good enough. It was that look. We know you, you we we know what you can be, and yet you, you're just coming out here and you're and you're happily shitting the bed and not really caring, and you know that that doesn't go over well in this city, and it shouldn't. And that 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 that's how you allow for a losing culture is when you have fans that are, that just don't care, um, what happens, but it was certainly a disheartening road trip. It had us all in our, all in our bags thinking about whether this team could really be as bad as a first round exit. And I think the last couple games have sort of restored order, although tonight wasn't comfortable really at all. Um, but you know, I, I think one thing that we definitely have to discuss is, um, I, I guess we'll start off with Al Horford here, because I think Horford, in, in a lot of senses, is, is the reason that Embiid and the Sixers really, as a whole, are struggling. He 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 can't hit the broadside of a barn um, with a kickball right now, and um, you know he, he he's really struggling on all fronts. There's no spacing there's no stretching the defense because of his shooting and it just puts everybody in a tough spot and you know i'm sure he's frustrated too but i'd like to see him get angry and get and like show that like like i'm better than this i know i'm better than this that little bullshit clap he does after every miss or every mistake it's aggravating as hell it's 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 completely just it, it, like great you're you're clapping your fucking hands like a little dweeb get angry Pounce the, you know, smack the ball against the ground like a lot of guys do. Kick a chair, do something other than other than other than this little tired act that you do. Um, but I think the the, the the they're in serious trouble long term if Al Horford keeps this going I, for a while. It's been in my head that that signing, as good as it was intended to be, in the end if they never won a championship, it'll be because of that signing, that they, because they didn't have enough money for anybody else. They couldn't unload the contract. And then by, that, and then by the time it was over with, there was a dramatic difference in, in,
1: anyway. Right. And the thing for me is that I, I think I've made my mind up on Al Horford and this contract, but I'm not going to decide anything entirely until the playoffs. And I see how the Sixers utilize them in the playoffs. I've argued that Brett Brown has misused his players in the front court uh, historically, but when when I looked at Al Horford's numbers, it, it's not like he, he's being deprived in, in certain areas. He's supposed to hit career norms in his post ups per game, his total post ups, his catch and shoots, his three point attempts, his mid range shooting. He's supposed to set career norms, if not, barely meet them. Now, when I look at how Philadelphia is using Al Horford, it, it, it's just it, 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 it's it's mind boggling. Because you'd argue if you put Al Horford on the bench, that'll salvage their starting five, and then they can start functioning a little more efficiently and their offense will make a little more sense. But I'm starting to even wonder in a sixth-man role or even as the seventh man playing with, like, Alec Alec or Josh as as a primary ball handler, how will Philadelphia utilize Al Horford? And if you've looked at how he's gotten most of his points throughout his career, you're talking about pick and pops, high-percentage shots. Mid range shots, shots around the rim. Al Horford is struggling to convert even those shots. And I think gravity matters. It's very important on the basketball court. So for Philadelphia, if you put Joel Embiid at the low post and Ben Simmons playing off ball is going to be around the elbow, where Al Horford historically has gotten a lot of his points, you're now using Al Horford as a catch and shoot three point option. Well, the problem there is he shoots 32% on catch and shoot opportunities this season alone. Since 2017, that number has been decreasing. So you've got a stretch four, who is primarily a center, in my opinion, as one of your two shooting options. Now, if there's three players on the floor that are within the restricted area in Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, and then enter Tobias Harris as the third, potentially, one of your two three-point shooters is Al Horford. And teams are going to continue to dare Philadelphia to shoot because they're just going to pack the paint. They're going to put five players, four players in the paint. And you see that pretty frequently when teams run two, three zones now two against Philadelphia. They will dare Philadelphia to shoot the basketball. And that's because Al Horford is one of two of your three-point shooting options. But I look at different ways Philadelphia can utilize Al Horford, and I'm not even sure how he can complement this offense. Because, Austin, I'm curious to know what you think. Could you use him in a pick and roll? And if you do, I don't think Joel Embiid can be on the floor. And who's your point guard in that pick-and-roll scenario? So
0: you're saying what you're saying with, with Al Horford at center?
1: I think he's primarily right. a center. And it, it, and prior to the season, all of the rumblings were that Philadelphia finally they, – they finally put pen to the paper and got a backup center for Joel Embiid. Right. Now, I wasn't sure how the experiment was going to work with him as a stretch four, and I know Al Horford talked about wanting to play the stretch four but he couldn't in boston and the four is his natural position but for philadelphia to utilize him as this stretch four and for this not to work up until february and philadelphia to still not be cognizant of that i'm not even sure how they can utilize Al Horford. Right. like i said he's on track to hit career norms in almost everything his catch and shoots his three-point attempts his mid-range shot he's just not shooting right. well and it really raises the question: How can you utilize that? Well, I think
0: I think number one, the fact that he's missing a lot of shots short is a very concerning issue because what that means is that the legs aren't there, and that's just a natural part of of, of, got, of players declining with age. And you'll see guys who you know aren't like snipers like guys like Andre Godala, who had good years as shooters, but but largely were not known to be snipers. When the legs go, the shots are always short. And that's what it's been with Horford a lot this year. And I wonder if maybe he just had you – know, this is the beginning of a of an inevitable decline and we just caught it at the worst time or what. But I, I don't think there's any way you can play him at power forward anymore. Not only is the shot not falling – he's not beating anybody off the dribble. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. He'll, he'll have a nice fake and go – you know, a a couple times here and there, but I mean, defensively he's an absolute liability. It's a a power forward. I mean, he can't stay in front of anybody. He's getting beat to the basket all the time. And so I I think the only way that you can really use him and and not have it complete be a complete shit show is with him off the bench as the backup five. I know that's a big blow to the ego of the GM who gave him $109 million, but at some point you have to say, Winning a championship and winning and winning with this team is more important than my ego taking a hit, um,
1: and that's that's what I was going to ask you too. Do you really think it matters at, at that point, despite him making twenty five to twenty seven million dollars a season? At that point, do you think he's going to clash heads with management or Brett Brown if he's sent or, or relegated to the bench? I don't bench think
0: room? he he really doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who would be like refusing to come off the bench. I think he's like fostered and nurtured reputation as someone who is largely a team player, but you know, 109 million to come off the bench would probably, you know, it probably feels like an indictment on you, the player, although it's you know probably kind of cool to say like, Hey, I'm not doing jack shit and I'm getting paid 109 million. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, I, I should sure. be better than this. Um, but I mean, it's, it's ugly, man. I mean, it's ugly right now for Al Horford, um, and it's it raises a lot of concerns that he was, you know, doing okay when Embiid wasn't here, when he when Embiid was hurt. Now that Embiid's back, he's been basically, you know, lost and forgotten. Um, and you know, I would like to see them. You know, if they do fire Brett Brown, which I think at this point is essentially ine- inevitable, unless they, by some divine miracle win a championship even 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 if they got to the finals i think he would be looking in at his job not you know not in a driving seat um but with a new coach i would probably give it one more year just to see if you can blend it a little better maybe things look different um but i I think it's i think it's a ship that you know it it might have i think the line tying it to the dock might have snapped by now um and you know but but There's there's more important things to this team than Al Horford right now. Let's go to Joel Embiid. Um, he he's had a very cryptic season in terms of the things he's said, trying to do some soul searching while also trying to save his coach's job, while also trying to you know stay healthy and win and and, and win games for this team. Of late, it's been a massive massive struggle for Joel Embiid. He was horrible in Milwaukee, although he had a did he did have a decent third uh, fourth quarter until Brett Brown inexplicably pulled him and then completely cut off the momentum. Um, He was, you know, laboring some against Miami, ineffective against Boston. Um, He's really been struggling since he's coming back. I think a lot of it has to do with the injured hand. I don't think that hand is healed yet. Um, And I think it's pretty obvious to see. Um, What are you seeing from Embiid?
1: I definitely agree. I, I think the hand is really hindering his capability to dominate games. I I don't want to jump the gun and and say his conditioning is poor because I don't know what's happening behind closed doors and in practice. Uh, But he just looks a little slow to me. I, I don't think he's really caught up to game speed. And Austin, you and I talked about this. Joel Embiid is potentially rushing himself back to play. And in this scenario, it would be he put himself two weeks ahead of the schedule for when he should have been playing so he could perform in the Kobe Bryant game. My apologies there. And Looking ahead a little bit, you've got the All-Star game coming up, which I know Joel Embiid wants to play. And so he may have rushed himself ahead of schedule. But prior to the season, he talked about him wanting to play every single game. And he understands just as well as the coaching staff understand that the medical staff alike is not going to allow that to happen. He needs his rest and load management needs to be applied, and that's okay. Uh, But I just think Joel Embiid doesn't look up to game speed. Other than not looking up to game speed, I I think one thing I've noticed is that a year or two ago, anytime Joel Embiid got the ball within the perimeter, you looked at who was defending him, and it was almost like you knew it was a bucket. It's it's one of those things where stats can't really define this. It's it's just it's something that I felt watching Joel Embiid. If he received the basket or the the ball rather with his back to the basket, and he was in maybe twelve to fourteen feet of the basket. You knew it was a bucket. He was either getting fouled or he was getting a bucket. But now it's, it's like centers that, that shouldn't even be on the floor with Joel Embiid are stifling him. And I, I just think that's due to him not being caught up to game speed. And I also think it's, it's – it's, it's, I understand he's being post-up more this season than he has in recent years. But I think the Sixers need to eat into the shot clock a Absolutely little more. correct. And in doing so, that puts Joel Embiid in, in, in a position yeah. to get set up in the post which is where he's most effective. I mean, Damian Lillard is one of the best players in the NBA in a pick-and-roll scenario. He has one of the highest points per possession in the PNR. Joel Embiid has a higher point per possession in the post than Damian Lillard in that scenario. So simply put, Joel Embiid in the post is one of the most dominant players in the NBA. Now, I don't want to be piggybacking what the national media is perpetuating and saying, get your ass in the post, stop shooting three. Because Joel Embiid said it perfectly in his athletic article, I have to do this. The game of basketball is evolving, and I need to evolve with the game. I need to shoot three or four three-point attempts a game, and that's fine. But I think if the Sixers eat into the shot clock a little more, it gives your center an opportunity to run down the court, get set up in the paint, maybe get set up a little bit outside of the paint so he can run the pick higher up uh, in deep two-point range. But if he can get set up, that opens things so much more. It opens the corner three. You add a guy like Glenn Robinson who cuts back door. It opens up off-ball movement assists. It just diversifies your offense a lot more when your center is set up in the post. But I think Philadelphia rushing their offense, it's, it's really taking – Brock, a what so else did MB say enemies. in that
0: article? I forget. I didn't actually forget. But what did he say? He, I, I mean, he just wants to win. No, 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 no. What, what did he say? I i,
1: I don't. I don't know. What did he say? I just. What did he say, Brock? <laughs> what did he, you know what he, he said. said. I just want to win a fucking title, man. That's it. There we go. Come on, you got, you got me. You got me cursing on your your first episode. I got to make my debut, and and, and I'm already spitting out curse words, man. What are you doing to me?
0: Exactly right. Exactly right. Now you're, you've been initiated. Um, I think you're you're 100 correct. Uh, the shot clock usage has something that has been something that's been befuddling to me. Last Saturday against the Celtics, when they were in the third quarter, only down like eight or nine points, they shot like six threes in a row, all were bl- all were bricks. Boston wasn't making any shots, so the Sixers could have crawled back in it and even taken the lead. And they kept shooting threes, and then the Celtics made a couple in a row, and then suddenly down 15 again. And it was a complete, you know, b- buzzkill. the entire thing. And that, I think, goes back to Brett Brown. He said, I want them to shoot more threes. They've been shooting more threes. And they haven't been falling. They have not been falling. Now, hopefully now with with, 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 with Korkmaz hot as all hell, um, Glenn Robinson there, um, and who else? Uh, Alec Burks there maybe that that'll provide a little more spacing but mm-hmm. the shooting is, is a big issue you either have to adapt that philosophy to complement this this gr- this group of players better and say hey maybe not so many threes or you gotta you know you you really gotta start to to, to uh, it's not it's not easy to say to focus in on making threes because obviously like, they're not missing them on purpose mm-hmm. but they, they really gotta find a way to either get better looks. Order to readapt that, that offense to, to 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 fit these players better. The first look every time down should be a Joel Embiid in the paint. You have Absolutely. to get him going. You have to get him going early on in the game and get him engaged. If you get Joel Embiid engaged, you have an excellent chance to win on any given night. When he's not engaged, turns the ball over, commits bad fouls, doesn't play good defense, he's not making any shots, and then you're you're screwed to begin with. If you can get him early looks, that is pivotal. That, that, that is king to this team.
1: That, that's, um, that's a brilliant point. You have to work from the inside out. So if that requires giving Joel Embiid five looks from 10 to 15 feet early and then moving him out, that's fine. But you need to establish that down low presence early so you could work inside out. If you start the the basketball game and your center is, is playing 20 feet from the basket, that's sending a message to the opponent. And, and, and it's forcing Joel Embiid to dribble – and make too many decisions too far from the basket. He gets double teamed as it is under the basket enough. So now if you have a center stepping out on him 20 feet from the basket and he's forced to dribble there, a guard just has to step over and play help defense, and it's a turnover. And that's why the Sixers struggle so much there.
0: Yep. I'll I'll do you one better. I'll I'll revise that statement. The first five or six looks down the floor should go to Joel Embiid in in the paint. Because – either A, the defense has to find a way to, to, to counter it, and then in which case, okay, then you go to the next look, or B, they throw a double and someone else is wide open. The first five looks should be to Joel Embiid within 15 feet of the basket where he can look opposite and fire, fire to open cutters or, or shooters if the, if the double comes, or if not, he goes to work and, and, and he has a quick 10 points and he's locked in from the jump. Um, that That's how this offense should be run to open up the game get out the faster starts that way um let's let, let's let's jump over to we'll, we'll, we'll do this too do you think Joel Embiid is mad at the fans or mad at himself
1: I think it's a combination of both but if I had to give an answer I'd say the fans
0: really okay yes do, do you do you think like does that concern you at all and maybe like there might be the ever so slightest strain in the relationship
1: Unfortunately, I do. I I think the relationship is heading in in a bad direction. I don't think it's going to be detrimental to the point where Joel Embiid forces himself out of Philadelphia. But I just don't like this season specifically where the relationship is headed. And I know Joel tried to salvage uh, saying STFU during the basketball game by saying he was saying it to himself. And and he he, he wants to return to being a good asshole, the, the, the nice asshole. Yep. Uh, I, I think that was kind of saving his image. Maybe he was told to do that by, by PR or maybe he was made aware of the backlash on social media from uh, the, the two STFUs. But in my opinion, I, I think he was a little hurt by the fans. I think he was a little offended that he was getting booed on his home court and Jason uh, Jay Blevins tweeted that the Sixers have this prestigious home record. And yet their centerpiece center, who, initiated or, or kickstarted this process, why everybody is here, and why we're constantly selling out, and he's getting booed on his home court where Philadelphia is so successful, I think it, it hurt Joel Embiid. And I don't want to say that his ego is fragile, but I think he took that to heart. And, and that's okay. Uh, but as long as that can motivate him, and and he stays true to himself, I'm okay with this little place, uh, joyful relationship going back and forth with the booze and whatnot. But I, I do think this was primarily because of the fans. Absolutely,
0: and you know I I, I don't know that I believe that it's gonna like that it's like this, this this worrisome thing that that you know that that little back and forth. But I do you know I, I think he feeds off of it. I think it motivates him, and I do think I think it did hurt him because I think he feels like he's you know the the, the city has gone, you know, ha- has defended him to no end for the first two and a half, three years he's been here. And then as soon as, you know, th- you know, there was like, a, there was like a little, um, you know, a, a little bit of like, I guess, resentment towards him or hostility towards him. He was like, well, what, what the fuck is this? Like, 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 you know, it's like the first time your, 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 your parents yell at you, you know, like, 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 mm-hmm. like, 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 you don't really know how to handle that you know they they have been giving you milk and food for for you know 2 3 years and then you make a mistake you get time out and you're like, you're like what the fuck is this about <laughs> um, but um, anyway let's go over to Brett Brown now um, you know the, the, oh let's let, yeah <laughs> um he you know, I, I think he is very close to death's doorstep with this team. I, I, you know, and I do feel bad for Brett Brown because I think the best year of construction this roster has had was in 2017-18 um, when they had, you know, been for his rookie year, and that roster was was built very well. There was depth, there was shooting, and they won sixteen games in a row. They defied all expectations. They got to the second round of the playoffs. He got out coached handily but it was his first season as a head as as you know as a real playoff head coach um and then last year there's a lot of roster turnover he lost to the buzzer in the second round in game 7 on a on an unbelievable shot <clears throat> i think he's sort of been treated a little bit unfairly but the criticisms have been valid they turned the ball over a ton although they have been much better at that lately this season um you know the, the game plans are questionable at best the philosophy is steadfast and it often burns them. Players regress under him quite often. Um Mm -hmm. what what is your take on the
1: Brett Brown situation? Now from my understanding, Philadelphia has given Brett Brown four different rosters. And a lot of people have used that as ammunition in support of Brett Brown. However, I use that against him. And I say that because I looked at trends and I think trends can tell an entire different story. Because throughout his entire tenure with Philadelphia, they've been riddled with essentially the same problems throughout four different rosters. And that's completely different personnel. Something has to give. Now, earlier, I I investigated the turnover problem in Philadelphia. I give credit to Brett Brown because he's used Ben Simmons a little differently. And Philadelphia has done a very nice job in this latter half of the season not turning the basketball over. But almost Every single serviceable role player in Philadelphia had a clear improvement with ball security when they departed from Philadelphia. Dario Saric, Rashawn Holmes, Nolan's Noel, TJ. M- I mean, a handful of players had much better ball security when they departed from Philadelphia. And I looked like, I saw that as an indictment of Brett. Now, when I didn't look at turnovers anymore, because like I said, Philadelphia's gotten better, I looked towards another thing that infuriates me when I watched the Sixers. I said earlier, Philadelphia needs to eat into the shot clock a little more. Now, I looked because 2015 was the inception of tracking shooting in the shot clock, according to an NBA stat. Since 2015, every single year since 2015, Philadelphia is one of two teams in the NBA that has placed top 10 in three-pointers attempted very early in the shot clock every single year since 2015. The only other team is the Houston Rockets. So in every year, from 22 seconds to 18 seconds, which is classified as very early in the shot clock, Philadelphia has placed top 10 in the most three-pointers attempted. Otherwise, I look towards their pick-and-roll defense, which has been atrocious in the previous Mm -hmm. couple of seasons. And that's another area where Philadelphia has been bottom 10 for consecutive years. Since 2015, they've been bottom 10 almost every single season in allowing opponents points per game. They're, they're, they're allowing opponents to score an unreal amount of points per game in a pick and roll scenario, and their defense has only gotten worse there. I also looked at those two, two things as an indictment of Brett because these are trends that have continued throughout all of their different rosters with all different personnel. So X's and O's aside, getting out coached players, this and that, I looked at those trends, and they've been consistent. And those are the things that really sold me. Now, when I watch the Sixers, a team that's so bad on the road this season, and it's February, I look at that as a team is unresponsive to their coach right now. The coach has lost the locker room. And there's other things that I've said, like Brett Brown has used Ben Simmons incorrectly. He should be the four, or Joel Embiid is being used incorrectly because he's 20 feet from the basket. Those are things where I- I've been a little more compassionate, and I kind of understand. It- it's been tough for Brett to make this clunky, awkwardly fitting roster work. But at the same time, there's just certain things where last year it was like you let teams go on 18 to 22-point runs before calling a timeout. Or this year, it, it, instead of doing five-man rotations like you used to take five in and put five in or take five out, put five in, this year it's like a player gets a hot hand and he's in the game for three minutes oh, while he has a hot hand. And then you don't see him. A cor- for court glass tonight. A- a- court tonight. He, 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 exactly. It's just these, these these subtle things that that you watch and you pick up on, and if it was his first second or third year, maybe it would be excusable but in a near decade tenure, these things just are reoccurring and and it becomes almost inexcusable, especially given how how this team is underachieved this year before you look towards splitting your players up, you have to look at the coach absolutely correct
0: um so you know you and I are on the same page about Brett Brown um let, let, let's move on to the the, the trade deadline. Elton Brand, um, he, he he traded three second round picks for the for, for Glenn Robinson the third and Alec Burks. Alec Burks had a really nice season with a you know a, a, an injury riddled Warriors team, um, a team going through a transition period. And he also, uh, and, and then there's Glenn Robinson, who for his career has been a, you know a minimal usage. Nice role player this year. He's sort of uh, really come out and, and, and been a been a productive member of a rotation, shooting forty percent from three. Burke shooting thirty seven and a half percent from three. I'm expecting to never really see um, for uh, not Furkan um, Raul Neto ever again. I'm I'm expect I'm I'm expecting that. Oh wow. um, I you know I, I think those two guys are really good pieces uh um for this team because burks can can you know be that secondary ball handler that microwave piece off the bench who could get you a quick seven points in two or three minutes and really get things uncongested when it gets clogged up um and then with with with, with uh, robinson i thought he had a really good debut tonight He was cutting phenomenally well off ball, reading things very well, made a jump shot. Um, I I like them so far. I like them a lot so far.
1: Yeah, I I did too. And Glenn Robinson, I'll look at before Alec Burks because Glenn made his debut tonight. This is a player that's very low maintenance, but what he does on the basketball court is unmatched. He does the little things that matter, which can really complement Philadelphia and a Ben Simmons-centered offense. Ben Simmons wants to run. When he gets in transition, a player like Furkan Korkmaz is awesome for him because he could just make the trail pass and Korkmaz can knock down a three. But if Furkan Korkmaz is playing spotty, there's really nobody else on the roster that can compliment Ben Simmons in transition. Glenn Robinson is athletic, which is awesome because if he does his backdoor cutting or in transition, that gives Philadelphia an added boost. But I look at his catch-and-shoot three-point shooting – and in 4 of his 6 seasons, Robinson shot over 40% on catch and shoot opportunities. And Philadelphia is reaping the benefits of having a good catch and shooter this year with Furkan Korkmaz. If you pair that with a guy like Glenn Robinson who's athletic like I said, but an able-bodied shooter, I think Philadelphia's offense is going to benefit greatly. And this is an offense that is predicated upon three-point shooting. When their shots fall, they can run teams off the court. When their shots aren't going in, that's when they can't really compete because they have to compensate elsewhere on the floor. Now, that sounds, it sounds like an easy analysis. If your shots go in, you win. If you, but this team really can dominate when their shots fall. Furkan Korkmaz and Tobias Harris, in wins, have three-point percentages over 40%. In losses, it's under 33% for both of them. So when their shots fall, they're good in transition, they're dangerous in the half-court offense, and it's not affecting their defense. But when their shots don't fall, that's when their offense affects their defense, too. And a team that is supposedly this, this bully ball team, even on the defensive end, when their shots don't fall, they struggle on both ends of the floor. So Glenn Robinson is a guy who I really like in transition. He's going to be awesome. And Austin, you said it. he caught phenomenally tonight. He sure did. It, it was a breath of fresh air. Because it's been very rare to see that off-ball movement in Philadelphia. And that that
0: statistic you just laid out um, is brought to you by the King Cobra, your official uh, provider of all shotgunning tools. If you like shotgunning beer, King Cobra is your source. Um, Let's go to Elton Brand to wrap things up a little bit here. So people have been giving Elton Brand a shitstorm lately about you know, the, 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 Horford contract, he's a horrible GM. I, 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 I do not think that that's a fair assessment of Elton brand. I mean, he was able to separate the emotional aspect of Dario Saric and Robert Covington got Jimmy Butler here. Um, of course, Jimmy Butler is not a winning player. So he went to Miami. <laughs> um, um, and then, you know, he, 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 Maybe you overpaid a little bit for Tobias Harris, who, by the way, was having an all-star level year for the Clippers. Um, he, you know, he brought Harris back. Horford, the idea of Horford was a very good idea. It made a lot of sense. Obviously, the hindsight is twenty-twenty. It it was a mistake to maybe let Reddick go, but I thought that he made a really. I think I thought that he went into the offseason with a very intelligent plan and a, and a direction. Not all plans work. And so I think for a guy who's in his second year as GM, I think the way that we that, that he's been treated by the fans is, is 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 you know is disappointing. I think he's a better GM than 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 they give him credit for and I think that the trade that he pulled off at the deadline when everyone knew how desperate the stickers were to add something to not give up any value for two guys who 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 you know who look pretty good. I I would say that The jury is still much much so out on Elton Brand at the very least.
1: I see eye to eye with you on this. I I think Elton Brand is being unfairly scapegoated. And Austin, you said it perfectly. You, You really hit the nail on the head. Philadelphia, despite what their offensive rating or net rating may have been, didn't have enough to compete in the Eastern Conference last year with Robert Covington and Darius Sarge. And that's why Philadelphia needed to make a trade so desperately. They were relying on Wilson Chandler and Mike Muscala for a duration of time. They were riddled by health concerns, and, and, and offensively, they just grew too stagnant. I think the Jimmy Butler trade was perfect at the time. Now, whatever happened to free agency happened, but I think Elton Brand is being scapegoated right now. Like you said, he went into this offseason with a plan. Prior to this season, everybody thought the plan would work. You've got Al Horford. Now you can stop Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Bucks. You can match up with Toronto. Which, by better. the way,
0: by the way, Giannis has not had an easy two games against the Sixers. I mean, he's had some struggles on the inside against them. So, you know, so right. so let's so there there is the the, the 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 logic is still intact. It's just that everybody else is beating the shit out of him.
1: Right. So so. I mean, Giannis might have a game or two against Philadelphia where he just flat out dominates, but that's because he's the most valuable player in the league. He's one of the most efficient players the league has ever seen. But you look ahead and you figure, well, in a seven-game series, if we can give him enough fit, then maybe we can throw him off balance. You're not going to stop him, but you can slow him. And I think that's what the plan is. Unfortunately, Philadelphia went for size, and in today's NBA, that might not be the smartest blueprint but another uh, another indictment of Brett Brown you need to make teams match your size and Brett Brown hasn't done that I think Elton Brand though did a very nice job going out and signing Mike Scott who at the time everybody in Philadelphia wanted I mean if you broke up Mike Scott and the fans of Philadelphia people would have been furious so hindsight is 2020 but let's not forget at the time how many people would have dreaded signing another player with that MLE over Mike Scott. Now, of course, you can say, yeah, there are plenty of options better, but no one foresaw Mike Scott for getting how to shoot a basketball. And for Al Horford, of course, Malcolm Brogdon would have been a better signing. Of course, you don't have to spend $97 million on Al Horford. You could have potentially signed Marcus Morris and then gotten a the backup center, things of that sort. But fans are both reactionary and emotional. That's what fans are. The thing with fans is, they dominate social media. So when you're scrolling through your timeline and you see everybody complaining, Markel Fultz got traded for Jonathan Simmons. Why did we do this? Or why did the 76ers spend $97 million on this player? Or why did Tab-? It's because those are fans perpetuating the narrative. The people in the NBA, people that observe the game, people that know basketball, they understand why these moves were made. Now, of course, things don't always pan out, and that happens, but that's just sports.
0: Preach, Brock! Preach! Preach! Oh my goodness! He just... Oh my god! Where's the
1: church choir? He's being unfairly scapegoated. If anybody should be scapegoated, it's the lunatic that yells and paces back and forth like a mindless nudnik on their on their sideline.
0: Damn the heat's coming in hot right now, Um, Brock. Before before we sign off for the night, what ends up being their away record on the season?
1: Oh man. Well well how many away games do they have left? They, let's see they're, they're, nine, got one. they're
0: nine and nineteen, they got thirteen left.
1: They're they're nine and nineteen, they've got thirteen left. So of the thirteen, uh without I know they how many times they play the Bucks? They played the Bucks like two more times this season. I right? think it's one more time. I think one more time. All right, so of the thirteen they got
0: they they got the they got the Clippers, the the Lakers, they got um they got the Bucks they, they're gonna have um, who else? Who else? Who else? Who else? Um, it, hmm. Yeah. So let, let's just say like those are the hardest teams they play on the road
1: yet. Still. All right. Let me let me let me say of the thirteen, they go six and seven.
0: Okay, so they finish eleven games under five hundred on the road. Okay. Yeah. Uh, not great. <laughs> no, not, of course not. Not right? great. Not great in the That's- slightest.
1: <laughs> That's the reality, but you figure Philadelphia, if, if, if they are a six-seater, wherever they end up, on the playoffs, essentially, they just need to win one game on the road.
0: Every series, win one game on the road, every series. Every series, just win one game on the road. That's it. Yep, that's all you need. That's all you need to steal back home court advantage. Just find a way to get that extra, that extra ball to drop through the hoop, that, that extra hustle play, one less turnover. Um, you know mm-hmm. you know all, all that stuff i think that they're gonna finish um around 18 and 23 on the road this season yeah. um you know i think that you know that sounds like a lot to ask for but i think they're gonna find a way to make this thing work and I, at home i wrote i predicted it in the summer and everyone laughed i said they'd be 39 and two at home this season and damn it they are approaching that exact prediction <laughs> yeah I,
1: I mean they're 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 one of the best teams in the NBA at home for some reason. Uh, but when they when they travel on the road, it's a different story. I don't know if it's because they're going to Magic City collectively. I don't know if it's because they're balling out. Magic City. Sure I don't know what it's it is, Magic but.
0: City on a Monday. Oh, man. Trump is,
1: Trump
0: Already, oh, oh, that's that's got to be a great field trip. That's got to be a great field trip. Um, well, he is Brock Landis. He is now the official – co-host of the Feed to Embiid, the number four Sixers podcast. Um, thank you, Brock, for, for, for joining the family. We'll, we'll do this at least once a week. And um, any parting shots? Any parting hot takes?
1: No, I'm saving them for next week, man. Today was the introduction, so... They'll get they'll get to meet the beef next week.
0: All right, I do have one parting hot take. When you look around the NBA right now, Porzingis yeah. and 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 uh, and Doncic, Oladipo okay. is struggling right now with with with, with the uh, with with the Pacers. There are mm-hmm. so many duos around the NBA that people that are struggling and people don't even like talk about them. Yet it's the Sixers have to break up Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. People are saying that I think because they are petrified of what these two can become if they ever grow into themselves as mental men, adults. If if, if Ben Simmons can develop a jump shot, and as Joel well as Embiid can really dedicate himself to being the best player on earth, I think fans are petrified because the worst thing that could happen is the Sixers are good and the Philadelphia fan bases, if Philadelphia fan base is running rampant, once again, you know, good.
1: I was gonna say that's that's some pretty good food for thought because I just got to thinking. How tall is Joel Embiid? Seven foot. Okay, and what position is he? Center. How many else? How many other seven foot centers can guard Joel Embiid at his peak health and peak shape? They don't
0: have a six eight one who can do it, a six nine, a six ten, eleven, or a seven foot two guy who can do it. So it's there's,
1: there's not many. Okay. And how tall is Ben Simmons? He's about six ten. At what position? Point forward. Uh, arguably one of the fastest players in the NBA. Uh, lightning speed. If the two of them can come into their own and, and mentally grow into men, as he just said, I think they are the best duo in the NBA. I think
0: it is petrifying for people. People do not want to see the Sixers be good. They do not want to be able to – they don't want to have to admit that the process was worth it. So the one thing that they could hang on is the potential – the the, the the star shooting across the sky, the one genie in a bottle wish that maybe someday the Sixers have to break it up because then they can say that they were right about the Sixers in the, the process. Until then, mm-hmm. they are terrified of what it could become. Again, yeah, I'm no, Austin Krell. He is Brock Landis. Brock, welcome to the pod. We are ecstatic to have you join us. As always, have a great night, everybody.